Amen. Thank you, Robert, for a reminder of the Holy Spirit. Please be praying for our teachers and our kids, teachers for wisdom and patience, our kids so that they listen. I say this all as a parent. My name is Pastor Nate. I'm the lead pastor here at Knollwood. And if you're visiting, welcome. I just encourage you to fill out one of those green connection cards. You can do it online as well at knollwood.ca connect. Just to let us know that you've been here and so that uh, we can touch base with you throughout the week. But as we get to continue to worship our awesome God, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13 today. And last week, as you turn there in your own Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the chair in front of you. Um, if you don't have one at home, I encourage you to take that one, just with the one stipulation that you read it. Start with the Gospel of John. But last week, as we turned to Acts chapter 13, we saw how kings and kingdoms will fail, but the word of the Lord will last. Because God's word will last, it confronts our pride and gives us a hope as we know that God's promises will continue on. The word of the Lord stands means that Jesus will come back one day, that all the promises that we see within his word will be fulfilled. The word of the Lord stands means that the promise of the Holy Spirit who seals us and comforts us as we were just learning about today. And when we look at what God is doing in Acts, we see the growth of the early church as a witness to the faithfulness of God and his promises. It shows that God is sovereign, that he is in control, even in the most difficult circumstances. And this gives us hope that no matter what challenges we face in our life, God is with us and will provide for our needs. The word of the Lord increased and multiplied. It also brings us hope because it reminds us of the power and effectiveness of the gospel message and the faithfulness of God to his people. But as we look at and recap what was last week, it also reminds us of something as we get into chapter 13, because this is a narrative, right? This is a, a, a story, an account of something that is true, that actually happened. So there's a continuation in the story. Now we're just in a different chapter. And as we look at Acts chapter 13, we see what the outflow of what will last. God's word continues to grow as the church sends out people to proclaim the word of God to the nations. So follow along with me in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. The word of the Lord says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, the Cyrene, and Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived to Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of, of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul. Sergius Paulius, 
a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for this is what uh, this is the meaning of his name, opposed him, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intensely at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hands. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for today and the chance we have to gather as we worship you through singing, as we remember who you are through communion, as we worship you in, in, in hearing your word pre, uh, uh, read and now preached, as we worship you through giving. Lord, I just pray that we would seek to continue to make much of you as your word is preached. As we listen, Lord, help us to worship you, to seek to make much of you. Give us ears and a heart that is ready to hear what your word has to say. And God, I want to preach so that you are glorified, and I want to speak of you, and I praise you, and praise your name. And Lord, I can't do this on my own, so by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed, and use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. In verses 1 to 3, we see the church sends. There's a local church, as we see in Antioch, that has prophets and teachers. The local church was gathering to worship God with purpose and intent. A part of that worship was fasting and praying. Yes, fasting is an act of worship. That's something hard to swallow for some of us. But it is. But also, we see that the church has two types of people at this moment of time. We have prophets and we have teachers. And this is important. And it asks us, it begs the question, what are prophets and what are teachers? What is the purpose of, of these two offices, of these two categories? For prophets, we see this in Ephesians 4, verse 11. And he, God, gave the apostles to the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers. So we see that these, this office, these roles are actually established by God for a purpose, which we'll get into. A prophet is someone who's filled the gap between Jesus' ascension and what we know today as the Bible. Because the word of the Lord is inerrant and infallible. It is true. It is revealing who he is. They were foundational to the early church and were used by God to establish the church. And they proclaimed to people God's message who wouldn't have any other access to it in any other way. So they were foundational to the early church. The prophet speaks nothing, absolutely nothing, that isn't of God. And even what the prophet says is to be tested by the word of God. So remember, God's word is authoritative, and everything goes to the grid of God's word. So next time some guy comes and stands up and you see him on TV and he says, I'm a prophet, I've been sent by God, thus says the word of the Lord, don't just accept it, go back to God's word and test it. And we see that 
throughout God's word, as God warns us not to treat prophecies with contempt, testing everything, hold on to the good. If it contradicts the Bible, you throw it out. Pray for wisdom and discernment because that's what the Holy Spirit does as we were just learning about. So teachers are the other office. Teachers help with this as they open God's word. Teachers are people who have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to effectively communicate what God says in his word. So we praise God for how he has gifted people with that. We've all experienced people who are gifted in teaching God's word as they seek to uh, strengthen us in our faith. They're able to clearly teach and speak what is in the Bible when it comes to doctrine of faith and the truths that, that we see within God's word. In fact, this isn't a requirement for teachers, uh, uh, sorry, this is a requirement for pastors and for elders. A pastor and an elder need to be gifted with teaching because their job is to teach the people the flock. That's how they feed them. That's how they care for the flock, is effectively teaching the word of God to those that they are entrusted to. It's actually the only qualification that really makes some difference between the two offices of elder and deacon. Outside of the man's desire to be an elder, he has to have the ability to teach. But these giftings are given to the church by God, which gets into the purpose of this. Because God's word tells us in Ephesians 4, verse 12, the purpose of these two offices is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's a purpose behind these things, not just to tickle the people's ears, right? So we talked about this last week, right? It's nice to hear the sermon was good, but that's not the purpose, right? The purpose is to grow people, to equip them. God gives us these people with these gifts to give the members what is needed to do the work of the ministry because, as Ephesians 4 continues on, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, which will happen when? When you're dead. So you're always growing. You're always going to need a teacher. You're always going to need someone who's going to walk with you and pouring into you directing you, correcting you, as he continues on to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of all fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So this is important. As Luke walks through, he's describing this important office that we already see within the church. There are people who are gifted with prophecy and people who are gifted with teaching. And their whole purpose is to uh, seek to mature the church in Christ. And that's what they do, to anchor people deep in God's word so that they don't get distracted by the new shiny thing that they see. Because we always get distracted by the new shiny thing, right? How many times do you see a commercial where it's like, hey, you're not happy unless you get this. You're right, I'm not happy, so let me get that item. Except the other day I saw a commercial for a Lexus and I went, well, that's outside my price range. (laughs) But we need these people who are people of the word, who seek to anchor us in the word and continuously point ourselves to the word. And we see that list of these people right here who are gifted. And what's really cool about this list is what's, we see what, how God is working within his church. 
We see, we, we see one man named Barnabas, who's actually from Cyprus. He's a landowner. He's a Jew. And then we see a man named Simeon, who's from Africa, probably. If you haven't guessed, I'm mispronouncing that word on purpose because I just don't feel comfortable with it. But he's probably from Africa. We see Lucius from Cyrene, who's also from North Africa. We see Mannion, a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Let's not forget who Herod was. He was his childhood friend. We see the gospel growing and growing to all parts of the world and gathering all sorts of different types of people with different types of background. And here is this man who is a lifelong friend of, Tetri- of, of Herod, who had been brought up with Herod. And, and like I said, let's not forget who he was. He was the man who beheaded John the Baptist, who mocked Jesus Christ as he was crucified on the cross. This wasn't a nice guy. And to be counted as a friend? I don't know. And he was probably right there at the time of all of those because he was probably part of the court, watching, listening. But the gospel captured the heart of one of Jesus' mockers, friends. There's no one who's too far from the gospel, folks, whose family was probably a very important family of that era and in that area, do you see how God uses all circumstances for our good and for his glory? John the Baptist was beheaded. Another person's not spending eternity in hell. If it may not look like it at this time, but see how God's sovereign and providential hand is at work here as God sends out more and more people. And then we see Saul, or Paul, because now I can start using the word Paul because this is the first instance we see his name changed. A man who describes himself as the worst of sinners, who persecuted the church, murdered Christians, and wasn't exactly in the Christian yearbook as the most to succeed. You see what God does? You see what he's doing? Leaders were made up of a diverse ethnic and sociocultural background. It tells us again that the gospel isn't contained or constrained by social, economical, or geographical, or ethnic boundaries that we often put up. God is calling and gifting people of all nations and statuses. And the Holy Spirit said he's speaking through one of these men as the whole church is spending time in purposeful worship of fasting and prayer. I have a feeling that someone's thinking, Pastor, when are we going to have a church-wide fasting? Well, you know, I've been thinking about it this week as I've been in this passage. This wasn't a walking down the streets, a random thing that was happening. They were already actively submitting themselves to who God is, and God used those circumstances to speak to them. I was watching, uh, I remember to this day, I don't know why, there was this movie called The Apostles from the early 90s, the, the Apostle from the early 90s. I can't even remember the guy's name because I'm really bad with names. But he, he, he gets caught in sin and he gets kicked out of his church. And then he goes into, he, he, he starts his life again. So he baptizes himself and he calls himself this thing. Like, and he thinks he's hearing God's voice from heaven. 
No. You see what's happening. This is all happening within the context of the church as they're worshiping and as they're submitting. They're fasting. They're denying themselves. They're removing distractions and allowing them to focus on God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit. They're praying, which is seeking God's will in their life and submitting their desires and their plans to his guidance and their direction. Praying according to God's will found in his word shapes and and molds us as we seek to align our will to God's will. Often I think we approach prayer as, okay, God, when are you going to align to my will? That's not what prayer is. Prayer is submitting. And we see the local church doing that right here. All these acts were submitting themselves as as a church uh, to God, humbling themselves before him. They weren't coming to God with a checklist of requests, but a goal of submission. And there was requests in there that were coming out of God's word, I bet. Maybe that they would have boldness, like we see in Acts 4. Maybe that they would be able to go and tell other people about Jesus Christ. Maybe they're praying about, who are we going to send out now? But God reiterates what he has already said in Acts 9, 15. This isn't the first time we've seen this. As, he, as, Ananias talks to, as God talks to Ananias about Saul, Go, for he is chosen, Saul, to be an instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And now is that time. In verse 3, it was only about this time of submitting, only after this time of submitting themselves to God that they commissioned Barnabas and Saul, showing that they support them in this first mission journey that Saul goes on. And God continues to work them, and they lay hands on them. And and this is a physical indication of what the Holy Spirit has already been doing in the lives of these two people. It's a symbol of solidarity, of standing by those being sent and and set apart for something. We do this as a church. Most recently, we did this with with one of our new elders, with Keith, as he came on as an elder. We came as, as current elders, came and laid hands on him and his wife. As, as, as Keith was being set apart to be an elder, a shepherd of this church. God gives the local church people who are prophets and teachers to mature them in their faith. And this is important because as the people mature in their faith, they will go out. Maturing believers are evangelizing believers. There's no way around that. The more I'm amazed by who God is, the more I desire for more to know him. It's in these verses that we see God's plan for overseas missions carried out by people being sent out by the local church. This was a deliberate decision of the church that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to send people out. And this is why we want to be a sending church because it's the pattern we see within God's word for his church. We don't get to keep people as their possessions of ourselves. As a pastor, let me be honest, I want to keep everyone. No, you're not allowed to go anywhere. You have to stay here forever. You're going to die here. But that's not our job. The church has been blessed with prophets and teachers to mature them and to anchor them in their faith so that they may be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. That means with praise that we send some out. 
And we see that in verses 4 to 12 as they are sent to proclaim. Because it's not like they're sent to go on vacation somewhere. Sometimes when I was a youth pastor, it seems like a lifetime ago, sometimes a youth would come up to me and be like, hey, I want to go on a mission trip. I'm like, cool, tell me about it. And they tell me about it. And I'm like, no, that's not a mission trip, man. That's a vacation. And I'm not paying for it. Right? You don't get to go chill on the beach for two weeks. They go out and proclaim. That's the job. And verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit again, is God who directs all that is happening in the growth of the church. They sail to Cyprus, which is Barnabas' home, which, let me be honest, I have friends who are in missions. You know the process that they have to go through in order to get to overseas missions? They got to learn things like language. I have a hard enough time speaking English. I am English. Adding another language, like you have to be gifted. This is a great starting ground. Barnabas already knows. He knows the land. He knows the culture. He knows all of these things. Probably a good idea for their first missionary journey. And the first thing that they do when they hit the ground is they go to the synagogues to proclaim the word of God. And that's a pattern we see actually throughout the New Testament. They always go to the synagogue first. Why? Because they're supposed to have already submitted themselves to God's word. They're supposed to already know about this man named Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah born of the Virgin Mary. There is already supposed to be a foundation. So instead of starting from scratch, they go to where there's a foundation already. And we'll get into that in a little bit more in the next few verses after next week with Pastor Chris. But this is all God working. And so let's pause here for a sec and ask a good question. If Barnabas and Saul are going on their first missionary journey, making them, I don't know, missionaries, what is a missionary? I was thinking about that. I've been thinking about it for a long time. But fundamentally, a missionary is a person who is called to proclaim the gospel to another different culture or geographical and or geographical location from their local church being sent out by their local church. And we see that with Barnabas and Paul. Their purpose is the same actually as you and I. If you're a Christian, you're called to go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ wherever you are. But they are called to another more intense. They're the shock troopers. They go to all nations, to the places where we're kind of, I don't know if we should go there and do that. They're the ones that go making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Missionaries' goal is to establish new churches, plant churches in other parts of the world, and this is the hard work that requires a unique call. All Christians are sent, but not all are sent to other locations. But we are called to support. And as a church, that's why we have financial giving that supports missionaries who establish new churches. And one day, we hope to continue to send them out. We were talking about this in our elders meeting uh, on this week. Praying, God, help us to be a sending church. 
Help us to be faithful in raising up men and women who would go, if it be across the street or across the world. The church is the instrument through which God accomplishes his mission in the world. A missionary is not independent of a local church, but is accountable to that church. The sending church provides financial support. We pray for them. We care for them as they're on the mission, mission field, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. This is why we pray for our missionaries who are in other parts of this world, like the Yingers or Rebecca Drew. Missionaries seek to bring the good news of salvation to, in Christ to people who have not heard it with the goal of establishing self-sustaining indigenous churches that are faithful to the Bible and the Christian faith. And we see that throughout Acts. And, and then we have the epistles like First and Second Timothy and Titus where we see how God used people like Saul and Timothy and Titus to establish churches and how they're working on growing their faith. I think of other people throughout my own life. I think of my Opa and Oma who are missionaries in India seeking to establish churches in India. I think of missionaries who, who are throughout Asia and Africa and North America. Movements like the Student Mission Volunteers of the 1800s or Hudson Taylor or Amy Carmichael. Some of us wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for God sending people to tell the, us about the gospel. My brother, Kwaku, was telling me about this fascinating paper he was writing about the impacts of missions in Africa. I'm still waiting for it. <laughs> we praise God for these men and women who go out faithfully, who go out to seek to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and watch how God establishes his church. So we continue to send and we continue to proclaim. And we see that right here. They proclaim the word of God right here in Acts 13. They go out and they teach that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That he is the long-awaited Messiah, the promised one, who alone can take away the sins of the world. They go to tell us that there is a God who is holy. And because he is holy, we have sinned against him. And the only thing that we deserve because of our sin is hell. That is our punishments which we talked about last week. But Jesus comes. He, he adds to himself humanity. He, he lives a sinless life. He pays the price for our sin by dying the most agonizing death we can think of on a cross, paying the price for our sin so that anyone who repents and believes will have life, eternal life. So what does it mean to proclaim? It means to take the gospel to everywhere. As Paul and Barnabas move throughout the island, they proclaim that word. But as they move out throughout this island, you think that it's going to be all easy, right? No, it doesn't. Almost immediately, they're faced with opposition. Because who does not want the gospel to be proclaimed? Who does not want to know that there's who does not want people to see that there is hope in this world? We just read about this during a confession in 1 Peter 5. He's roaring around like a, he's walking around like a roaring lion, prowling, seeking to devour and to destroy. We could talk to Pastor Chris about what happens on Friday. He's got great stories. 
but we see it coming right here with Paul and Barnabas. They come upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, and this is a man described as a magician. So this isn't exactly, this isn't the same way we use the, the word today, okay? So don't combine them, okay? Because I do like a good magician. <laughs> How do they get the money in the middle of the orange? I don't know. But these magicians here is described as someone who is being controlled by the, de- by the devil himself. They have demonic influences, which makes sense because he's also a false prophet. Remember how, he described what the pro- how, how we described what a prophet was at the beginning of this passage, which was important why we took time to do that. He's the opposite, hence false. They spoke only what God... A prophet would speak only what God said and nothing more and nothing less. That's why they could say, thus says the Lord. But here a contrast is beginning to be made. There are many examples of false prophets throughout the Bible. I'm spending time in the minor prophets right now, and I can't imagine, like, there's so many. And God tells us how to judge them. In the Old Testament, it says if you are a false prophet, and if you prophesy something and it turns out to be false, we get to stone you. Sometimes I wish we still did that because there's a lot of false prophets even today claiming to be a Christian, claiming to be a people of God. The New Testament calls us to judge them according to God's word. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 16, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians calls them deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. This man is described as a false prophet. That is who he is. Not a good thing. And a whole lot of judgment is going to be poured out on him. But how do we know what a false prophet is? You must know the truth in order to know what is false. If you're not in the word of God yourself, if you're not studying God's word, submitting yourself to God's word, surrounding yourself with Christian fellowship who are also opening the word of God, you're on your own. You will be tricked. Not too long ago, I remember uh, there's all these prophecies of the tribulation was coming because it was all wrapped around these blood moons that happened. You remember that? Hate to break it to you. I'm still here. So are they. We test everything by the word of God. I used to have, uh, when we were in Burlington, I don't know why, here in London we haven't had this, but in Burlington we used to have Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses coming to our house all the time. I always had fun. depending upon my mood. But I remember once talking to a Jehovah Witness and I asked him this simple question. I said, if Jesus walked up to you, would you shake his hand or fall on your face? Because it's a telling question. And you wouldn't know it if you didn't know your Bible. Because how does the Bible describe who Jesus is? John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. He's God. He's holy. I'm not going to shake his hand. I'm going to fall on my face and worship. You know what he said? I'll shake his hand. 
We have to be people of the word in order to know what is false. Galatians 1 talks about this. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, another one, but there is some who trouble you and, won't, uh, sorry, and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, even an angel... Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. It's important to know what the truth is in order to discern the faults. The outcome of their teaching is to lead people away from the truth of the gospel, which is why we see Paul's interaction with this man so harsh. John Knox put it this way, I never once feared the devil, but I tremble every time I enter the pulpit. And this man did not tremble because he didn't know who God was, is. So in verse 7, we are introduced to a different man, which makes another contrast here, and we'll get into this. He is the pro or he is the governor of the province. He is a, an intelligent man who's seeking out the word of God, and God is working in his heart. He's cultivating a soil that's ready to receive the seed of the gospel already before Paul and Barnabas even show up. God will make it grow. But in verse 8 to 9, we see this but, because there's a battle that's going to begin. You ever watch Lord of the Rings? I love Lord of the Rings. Right? There's these epic battles that you think you're going to lose, but then all of a sudden there's this glimmer of light and hope. And here we have this battle that's beginning to happen. And there has to be, because there's two forces coming at each other. A false prophet's coming up against a true prophet. A man who is the son of the devil is coming up against a man who is the son of God. This is an epic battle of spiritual authority. And Alamis was against them because Paul and Barnabas declared the gospel, and the gospel was a threat to his profitable relationship with the proconsul. So now there's a fight that's going to happen. So Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, like, sorry, like we see in Acts 4 8 with Peter as he preaches, the Holy Spirit enables Paul to have boldness that is necessary to do what is needed to do next. So he stares him right in the eyes. Sometimes we approach people who are wrong and we kind of like put our head down and kind of slouch our shoulders and stuff and like walk around like this. That's not what Paul's doing. He's confident. He knows the truth. He understands the truth. So he stares that person straight in the eyes and says, you son of the devil. It's not false. It's true. How could Paul do this? Because he understood what the gospel was. He was not ashamed of the gospel, for he understood it was the power of God for salvation. So how dare anyone block it? There will come a time when you need to put aside your Canadian niceness to speak hard truth. Elders need to do this when we see and recognize false teachers. The church needs to do this 
when there's wolves in our midst. We need to tell people also that they are sinners and that they need a savior. And when we do that, people don't like it. But it's boldness. And then Paul says, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The CSB translation says, won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? The word of God is true. It is the standard. It is the weights by which all things are judged. And this man kept manipulating God's word for his own gain. And leaders need to be clear in calling out these type of people because these type of people seek to get other people astray. And if I love you, I will call out the false prophets. And someone's going to say, stop being so mean, pastor. And I'm going to say, I love you. I love you. He was, this man was pitting himself against God. And by posing Paul's preaching and trying to turn people away from the faith, Alamis was making the straight paths crooked, twisting and distorting the truth in order to lead people astray. The kind of opposition to the gospel is seen as a serious offense and is worthy of strong offense, a strong rebuke. And immediately he comes. Paul says, immediately you will be blind, and immediately he becomes temporarily blind. He's grabbing at people's hands to guide him. He, he may be, have been temporarily blind, but this is just a sign of his true spiritual blindness. This man was experiencing the curse of God that we see in Deuteronomy 28, 28 to 29. But here's the thing. Without Jesus, we are all spiritually blind. Without Jesus, we're all under the curse of sin. To be spiritually blind is not to see Christ, and not to see Christ is not to see God. Spiritual blindness is, a, is an amazingly grievous condition experienced by those who do not believe in Jesus Christ and his word. They're the ones who reject Jesus, who are lost. The spiritually blind will perish, and they choose not to accept the teachings of Jesus and his authority in their lives. They are blind to how God has shown himself in his word. And those who are blind are described as those who do not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are fully folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is not just the state of this man, Bar-Jesus, but it's the state of us all. But Jesus is the answer to the spiritual blindness. As Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for my people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. That's who Jesus is. It is God who opens the eyes of the blind, so we pray as ascent people, that God would open the eyes of the blind as we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that they would repent to agree with God that they are sinners and renounce their sin and turn back, turn their, way, their backs on the old way of life to believe, to put all their confidence in the person of Jesus Christ. This man was a false prophet, as we see in verse 12. 
But even with all of what he was seeking to do, would not stop God from grabbing hold of the person he has called. The opposite happens, actually. God used the blindness of this man to prove the authority of the gospel, and God calls this man to himself. Nothing can stop God from achieving his plans. Absolutely nothing. The gospel can't be stopped by a false teacher no more than anything else. So God's people are called to proclaim the word of God, and we pray that we, we do that all the time, that we would be faithful in that, that we would be effective in our witness. See, God sends a part of the local church to proclaim the gospel, and this is an important part. And this is an important city with an important port, with an important person. And I can't help but wonder what happened next. How did God use this to further the gospel so that other people would hear the gospel and other people would be called to himself out of darkness and into light? So what, you may ask? It's a good question. See, the outcome of what will last is something that will continue. God goes, God's word goes forth as a local church sends out parts of her body to proclaim the word of God. A friend of mine once said it this way, we gather to scatter, and I think those words are true. We are all sent parts of a local body to proclaim the word of God. And what an amazing passage where we can see the power and sovereignty of God in calling and using people for his purposes. We see how important the local church is in sending out to missionaries. We see how the Holy Spirit guides and empowers the work of missions. We also see God is sovereign in salvation. And all of this brings us an amazing hope and encouragement because God is still at work in our world today. We were praying for another church here in town who's having four baptisms today. God is working in London and is still calling people to himself. Pastor Chris was late today because he was at a baptism service. Praise God. He is still working. The gospel is continuing to go forth. The gospel will continue to spread and transform lives no matter what opposition and resistance may come. In fact, if I see anything in the Bible, the more, there's, the more resistance there is, the more the gospel spreads. Because as people, we begin to actually live out our faith. And people look at that and go, wow, I like that. We are reminded that God's important role of the church and missions and the power of the Holy Spirit to guide and empower the church in all this work of proclaiming his word. You know, Nolwood has a history of sending. I think we forget that sometimes. I like history, so it's important. You know, I've read through the reports longer than some of you have been alive. I've read them. We've sent people on, on foreign missions trips. I think of the Drews, Rebecca Drew. I think of the Yingers. We've even sent the Mayberries. We have a history of sending. But here's my problem. It's history. I don't want it to be just history, do you? I want it to be part of us now. 
I want to be ascending church. Not because I want to be ascending church, but because that's the outcome of a gospel-believing church. Equipping the saints for the work of the ministry to be sent to proclaim, resting in the power of God to accomplish his will. And before someone says, hey, look, I have to go to Timbuktu. I actually think Timbuktu's in Africa. Yeah, yeah. I always say it as like some fictional place, but it's an actual place. Far away, someone far away. Did you know that in our own country, we have the most unreached people group in North America? You want to know where it is? It's Quebec. 1% of the population of Quebec is committed to an evangelical church. 1%. Our fellowship is partnered with an organization called Mission Quebec, seeking to just double that by God's grace to 2%. We are all sent parts of a local body to reclaim the word of God, if that be across the streets or across the world. We seek to mature men and women so that they can bring the message about Jesus to the ends of the world because it's hope It is hope. We have it. Let us share it. Let us proclaim it. And I challenge you as a church, pray that we are ascending church. Pray that we are purposeful in raising up men and women and maturing them in their faith so that we can send and more churches are planted and the gospel continues to grow. Let us pray.